When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network in Ukrainian Studies. I'm your host, John Shepichka. With me today is Dr. Maria Sonovitsky, who is an Associate Professor of Anthropology and Music at Bard. Today, we are discussing her book, Wild Music, Sound and Sovereignty in Ukraine, which was published in 2019 by Wesleyan University Press. Maria, thanks so much for joining me today to discuss your book, and welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So I want to actually start today by talking to you a little bit about your background in music. Um, and I'm curious to know, how did you come to study music professionally and especially Ukrainian music? And I'm curious how these sort of things drew you to this project that became this book that was published in 2019. Well, that's a great question. It's a great series of questions, and I don't want to take up too much time answering it. So I'll try to be brief. Um, I grew up in a Ukrainian-American um, family. My parents were refugees from the Soviet Union, sort of. It's a complicated history. Um, but anyway, they were displaced persons after the war, um, and they came to North America um, in the 1950s. I was the first generation born here. I'm telling you all of this because um, both of the heritage f- feature of that story, which is important, um, but also because it was a kind of typical immigrant uh, family in terms of um, the fact that music was not considered, was too risky a profession, right? There was a kind of desire for stability. So I made, of course, the natural choice to get a PhD in ethnomusicology, the surest path that there is to um, career stability. Um, but uh, in, in seriousness, I had been a pretty... Um, I was really drawn to musical performance and um, I always had in the back of my head that it wasn't really feasible to fully pursue that career path. So I was looking for something else. And after I finished my um, college uh, degrees, which were in Slavic studies um, and in music, in musical performance and musicology, um, one of my professors uh, kind of encouraged me to, to apply for a PhD program in ethnomusicology. 
And that's how that started. I hardly knew what ethnomusicology was at the time. I just looked into it and thought, oh, yeah, this is a kind of perfect marriage of a lot of my interests. Um, So I was admitted into the Ph.D. program at Columbia University in ethnomusicology, um, which had a kind of undisciplined approach to the field. Um, My most of the people who trained me weren't strictly speaking kind of ethnomusicologists. They had varying uh, varying degrees, varying Ph.D.s. Um, and varying disciplinary commitments. Um, And then when the time came to choose a dissertation project, I pretty strongly rejected the idea of working in Ukraine, uh, mostly because I didn't want to be the person with a Ukrainian surname working on Ukraine. I think that I already instinctively knew and had been already exposed to the ideas that people who work on Ukraine are sort of marked in some sort of way as not neutral, right? Because it wasn't a sort of legitimate uh, place to study in the same way that Russia was, for example. And I was really indebted in my thinking uh just by luck that I had uh, taken coursework with uh, Professor Mark Van Hagen, who was an incredible mentor to me. Um, But I always think back to his, I think it's a 1995 piece called Does Ukraine Have a History, where he talks about the fact that the way that Ukrainian history had been perceived inside of the North American Academy was as a kind of nationalist pleading. And I just didn't want to be part of that. So actually, my first dissertation ideas were all in Latin America, in Brazil in particular. Um, And after doing some preliminary research, I realized, you know, my Ukrainian language skills are so much better. I'm attracted. I had been traveling back to Ukraine um, almost annually to see family and friends there. And I realized that I was really attracted to learning about Ukrainian cultures in the plural beyond what I had sort of already beyond what I already knew and what I had been exposed to in my childhood. And so the first um, the first idea for a kind of field site in the anthropological sense, um, or as my brilliant uh, advisee April Graham Jackson prefers to call it a garden site, uh, was to investigate Crimean Tatar musicality, because this was something I knew very little about, had very little exposure to in the Ukrainian diasporic uh, context. And so I wrote grant proposals to study in Crimea. And then the last thing I'll say in answer to this question is um, when Ruslana, this pop star from Western Ukraine, won the Eurovision Song Contest in 2004, I was uh, just starting graduate school and I was just fascinated by the phenomenon of it. You know, everyone around me in the Ukrainian diaspora, people who previously would have kind of looked down upon pop culture were suddenly very proud of this Ukrainian spectacle. Meanwhile, some of my friends kind of, you know, of a certain class in Ukraine were kind of embarrassed by it. And then I had previously been to Hutsulshina, to this region, um, this Hutsul region on the western borderlands of Ukraine, where um, I was exposed to a culture that has been exoticized for so long. And I just was really curious to ask Hutsuls themselves how they perceived Ruslana's rep- you know, supposed representation of their culture on an international stage. And that was the sort of kernel uh, by which the dissertation project developed and then eventually Wild Music, the book, uh, which was published m- many years later. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I mean, you, thank you for that amazing response because you touched on a lot of things and 
Um, you know, you, you talk about the late Mark von Hagen, who I think has done a lot for a lot of us in Ukrainian studies. And I was on the very tail end, but I feel fortunate to know him. And, you know, I thought a lot about that piece of does Ukraine have a history and what would it be when I was reading your book? And I, I think that in many ways, although you're not, you know, formally a historian, you are a historian in many ways. And your book speaks to this, these themes of wildness and sovereignty that sort of define, you know, the historicization of, of Ukraine. Um, but I really like this sort of notion that you mentioned. I think you called it a garden site that your advisor used, you know, and to me, it sort of speaks to a, a space where things are cultivated um, and grown, but also picked and consumed. And, um, you know, you, you speak of the, the Hutzels and you talk a lot about the instruments they played and how this sort of has been um, a, a region of exoticism in some ways. And I mean, I have firsthand experience of sort of living in the Carpathians for a while when I was studying Ukrainian in Lviv at Ukrainian Catholic University. And we got to go hang out with a bunch of, uh, you know, Hutzel people and they shared their instruments with us. And it was really fun to play. And if part of it is, and I have to admit, is it was just so new to me. These types of instruments are not ones that we come across, at least I do not come across uh, in the American context. And, you know, they were incredibly fun to play, but incredibly difficult. But through their instruments, I mean, they told us a history of that region. And, I, and you talk a lot about that in your book, which, you know, sort of leads me, I want to come back to a few of these points that you've talked about. But um, my next sort of question is, is that, the book itself is centered around what I would call and what you call two key terms that you introduce in the preface, which are sovereignty and wildness. And your book examines these throughout your five main body chapters that focus on some of the musicians that you mentioned, like Ruslana, uh, the Doc Daughters, Jamala and others. And I'm wondering if you can sort of reiterate for our listeners who haven't yet read the book, um, what makes music wild exactly? And how is wildness related to sovereignty and why is you know why are these two things useful as a lens for understanding ukraine yeah thanks um these are great questions and big questions and i think i just want to sit, so i want to clarify that garden site is actually a term that my advisee who is a phd student at berkeley currently oh, okay. uh, has okay. come, come up with just to properly attribute that her name is april graham jackson she's in geography at berkeley um so I might get into this question first by just saying that my first exposure to a theoretical framework that made sense for thinking about Ukraine was through post-colonial theory. And when I entered graduate school, we were reading a lot of theory from the subaltern school. Uh, Deepash Chakrabarty's book, Provincializing Europe, had recently been published, and, and I encountered that in a number of different seminars. And so this question of, as... Um, as was, it was famously put in, I think, a 2003 article, um, is the post in post-Soviet the same as post in post-colonial, um, was a kind of persistent question, nagging question for me. And I was really interested to try to think about how to bring it into dialogue with the ethnographic research that I was doing in a kind of fragmented way in various regions of Ukraine. So that's the other important thing to know here is that I was conducting what we would have called then a multi-sided ethnography, which, you know, methodologically isn't some sort of huge, um, doesn't, isn't like rocket science to come up with this idea, but it was in the anthropological tradition, um, a kind of remedy for this fetish of the field site, right? This like one location from which knowledge spurs. And I was trying to think in a comparative ways, right? About different borderland peoples, 
um, different internal others, let's say, through which the state reproduces itself. And this is a kind of recurring theme in a lot of post-colonial literature, um, you know, within the subaltern school and, and, and after. Um, and I will just say also that I was really inspired by the work, the collaborative work of Walter Mignolo and Mladina Plostanova, who are thinking across Latin American experiences and Central Asian experiences of having been colonized, right, of what it means to, to bring, as they call, a border epistemology uh, to bear in the dominant uh, theor theoretical framework. So these two key terms, sovereignty and wildness, are really quite distinct from each other, but the project of the book is to bring them closer together, um, in part because of the fragmented borderland nature of my different ethnographic sites, which, uh, which include Crimea, which include the far western borderlands of Hutsulshina, and to some degree the central eastern European regions, uh, which have been a kind of um, holy site for Ukrainian polyphonic of vocal styles. That's kind of the third ethnographic site in the book. Um, part of what I started to try to think through is how do these different borderland regions, how do these different internal others, others who have often carry along with them a history of having been exoticized, how do they help constitute the space of sovereignty? Um, which also begs the question of how do we define sovereignty? This is obviously an existential question for Ukrainians, and it, it became the very clearly so after 2014, which is when I was really working on the manuscript for the book. Um, but I also wanted to think not only about political sovereignty or the sovereignty of the state, but also about cultural sovereignty and also about bodily sovereignty. So I am indebted to Anya Bernstein's kind of three, three registers of sovereignty here. Um, and when we think about something like cultural sovereignty, which often includes things like um, musical practice, um, linguistic practice, uh, religious practices, language practices, all that stuff. I, I said that twice. Um, that's where we start to see the resonance of this term wildness, which is a term that I really borrow from the Ukrainian lexicon of popular music, specifically from Ruslana's usages of it. Um, but then I also kind of appropriate it into this other theoretical realm where I'm trying to talk about wildness as a representational strategy. And wildness as a representational strategy becomes fascinating because it usually includes an element of either self-exoticism or exoticizing others. So then it begs the question, what is the political utility, right, of self-exoticizing oneself? And in the case of Ruslana at Eurovision, you have this spectacle of exoticism that is pretending towards this festival of supposedly European popular music, right? So why would a Ukrainian artist choose to kind of represent themselves as Zina, the warrior princess, right? And while calling themselves uh, an ambassador of Hutzel culture um, in order to place themselves on the map of Europe, which is how it was perceived by many people. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. And I think you do a great job in the book of sort of talking about why people turn to wildness and how they use it to sort of, you know, self-embody their own representations of music and political identity. Um, and, you know, um, you know, how these things contribute to what you, you call in the book, you know, as ethnomusica and, you know, and, and these types of terms. Um, and, but also not how it contributes to sort of nationalism, which is something I want to return to in a little bit, uh, which I thought was, you know, uh, you did this very tactfully, but I, you know, sort of building on what you just said, actually, um, about wildness, 
one thing I was sort of thinking about while while I was reading the book was um, how different groups might define what wildness is. And I immediately wondered if some would interpret wildness as a form of backwardness or perhaps being underdeveloped in some way or, you know, even going as far as to think that maybe they're not modern because, you know, they're perceived as wild. Um, but you confront this directly and note that wildness is not those things in, in, in the sense that I'm talking about. It is, in fact, uh, like a form of representation that makes claims to what you call the authentic in one chapter, you know, the authentica and, and to sovereignty. Um, and I'm wondering, though, if, if you came across musicians or groups of people um, in Ukraine that sort of rejected this label of being wild or felt uncomfortable with such designations. And it, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd like to hear more about that. And, and what got me thinking about this was actually a music video from a Ukrainian band, um, Madheads, maybe you know, you know of them, the ska band. And, you know, they have this sort of famous video that is taught in a lot of Ukrainian language courses, Smoreka. And it, the music video starts with this guy who's sitting in his apartment in Berlin and decides to travel for the weekend. And one of the options is the Carpathians. And he goes over to the Carpathians and just sort of has crazy adventures. But the one thing I was thinking about is, you know, there are, um, you know, there are characters that are clearly meant to be Hutzel people. And there's a certain type of music within the sort of ska punk atmosphere that contributes the more I thought about it. And because of your book made me realize that they sort of sell, you know, Karpaty and these these regions as wild in some sense. Like you can go and have a wild experience, but at the same time, it made me think about a Ukrainian band sort of embracing that and selling that, um, and what it means to be wild. So I'm just curious, you know, of, of those actors that you came across in your research that you know might reject that label of wild or had different feelings about being wild and maybe didn't like that designation. Yeah, I mean, of course, and that's in some ways the the most substantive fact of this discursive construct that I'm calling wildness is its ambivalence, right? And it's many manifestations. And it's kind of, it's uh, ability to morph according to context and, and perception. I, I think that one of the fascinating aspects is the degree to which Ukrainians understand how they have been depicted as the kind of wild borderland for so long. And if you read the epigraphs that I have in my book, I, it's sort of maybe not very subtly put there. I have Johann Gottfried Herder <laughs> writing about the little wild peoples of Ukraine who will someday awaken Europe Europeans from their slumber, right? This kind of projection on the so-called wild East. Um, and then I have uh, like a little scrap that someone hung up in an elevator in, in the outskirts of Kiev that says, let us not be barbarians. Like, let, you know, basically don't tr throw trash in the hallway because we don't want to, we want to be civilized people. Um, this discourse of civilization and barbarism is a huge feature of the current tragic ongoing Russian war of aggression against Ukraine. And, you know, I don't want to like, sound like I'm doubling down and believing in this kind of binary view of things. But the fact that these terms have purchase and a history in this part of the world, as they do in many other parts of the world, but they're articulated in a specific Ukrainian way here, um, is in some ways, you know, the point that I'm trying to make with this term. Wildness 
can be interpreted in so many distinct ways. Um, so to quickly return to the Ruslana case, uh, because it's such a clear example, right? Ruslana sort of um, exploits the potentials of this European fascination with Ukrainian wildness by just heightening the representational force of it to the degree that she is literally called Zina the warrior princess of Ukraine, right? I mean, it's like the most quote-unquote barbaric possible representation. Meanwhile, many Hutzels who, in fact, uh, fashion-wise, right, would never appear in leather miniskirts, but rather in kind of like clothing that fully covers their bodies, you know, are are offended, right, by the sort of attempt to exploit their culture in this specific way. Um, and then at the same time, you have some Hutzels who are just super proud. I mean, I had so many different kinds of people around Hutzulshina tell me that finally the world will know about the glory of Hutzul culture, you know? Um, and that becomes married also to the kind of touristic thing that you were just speaking to, that the Madheads video is about, which is that um, Hutzulshina, like Crimea, this was not a coincidence when I was thinking about which regions to write about, was the object of a touristic gaze for centuries. It was where people went to kind of enact a fantasy of escape from their, you know, their urban lives um, and to indulge in the sort of like tranquility or the soft exoticisms of a different culture. Um, and that's very true in the Crimean case as well. So just to give another example and not to make this whole thing about Ruslana, although of course that's endlessly fascinating, but in the Crimean Tatar case as well, you know, the fact that the Crimean Tatar radio station, which becomes this incredibly important infrastructure for Crimean Tatar repatriates after they had been exiled uh, mostly to Central Asia for over 50 years in some cases, um, is that they brand their music as, quote unquote, Eastern music, right? It's, again, a sort of they self orientalize in this case, we could say. And there's something about that, that kind of self-branding as other, that is politically expedient in that moment. Um, and that also allows them to claim, some, claim something distinct for themselves. Crimean Tatars are also incredibly aware, in most cases, of how they have been historically perceived as the kind of Oriental other, the Muslim other. I mean, this is a huge part of the discourse, right? Also since the Russian occupation, when suddenly Crimean Tatars become, become Islamic extremists and uh, therefore their imprisonment is justified um, or the imprisonment of the political elite. Um, but this, this is a kind of self-knowledge, right? That we know how you perceive us and we're going to still use that for our own political means. Um, so I think you know, it manifests in many, many, many different ways. And it's, there's never a kind of consensus view of what it might mean. But the fact that it is a recurring trope that I've, that I've noticed now across many different regional practices and local practices and in different media, I think, um, is, is, is what motivated the, the book to be this kind of multi-sided study. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I mean, I, I, I loved all of your chapters, but the, the one on um, the radio station, it was called Radio Maidan, right, in Crimea. And I, I, I sort of love this marriage between this sort of subtlety of the music being played on, you know, Marshutki, uh, while you're just sort of going through, the, you know, the urban world and you're sitting there sort of, in a, you know, just going about your day, but you're sort of consuming, maybe sometimes consciously or unconsciously, um, what they what you deem Eastern music are you you're, you know your chapter is called Eastern music and they the Crimean Tatar music is playing over the radios and I you know I love that sort of 
um, instance that you talk about in the book where you're sitting across from two elderly men and they instigate a conversation with you in Russian and they're holding their fishing poles with their beer, you know, sort of the standard image I have of, um, you know, pensioners going to, you know, live out their day in, in a nice fashion and you talk to them and they point, you know, up and making comments about the music. And it sort of, to me, showed um, the struggles of a marriage too for people that were living there that perhaps speak Russian, um, that are then consuming Crimean Tatar music. But for the drivers, if they are a Crimean Tatar, and you know this is the music they grew up listening to, how fundamentally important that was for them to be consuming that music in a public space. And you know, I, I would love to see that even be broadened further someday. Maybe you'll write about the urban experience of consuming music in Crimea and you know its current resonance, which you know I, I'm sure has changed um, since the full-scale invasion. Yeah, but, you know, I mean the soundscape. Oh, sorry. I was just going to no, add please, the, go ahead. the kind of, you know, the soundscape of the Marshrutka, I think actually could be its own book, book long, book yes. length study. Um, but there's a really fascinating history and reason for why the Simferopol Marshrutkas so often were playing Radio Medan, which had to do with the fact that when Crimean Tatar repatriates returned to Crimea, they were so heavily discriminated against. And becoming a Marshrutka driver, which was this kind of, you know, semi-legal transport system, right, but that often kind of um, operates in sort of shadowy ways, that that became a really legitimate line of work for many Crimean Tatars, uh, particularly Crimean Tatar men. And as a result, you have this phenomenon where the sort of semi-public transport is often, um, not always, you know, but very often colored by the sounds of this, quote, what they were calling themselves Eastern music. And the case that you <laughs> remind of the fishermen, you know, was one of those moments when I saw the stakes of that soundscape in very concrete terms, which is why it's one of the stories that I tell. But there were so many other instances of sort of passively riding on the Marshutka, which was one of my primary modes of transportation in Simferopol, um, you know, where people would be singing along, right? That there were also ways that people were connecting to the kind of local Crimean Tatar presence through the presence of this radio, which I will just quickly mention was also shut down after the Russian occupation of Crimea in 2014. Um, so the, you know, as were many other Crimean Tatar media outlets um, and Radio Midan and so many others moved to mainland Ukraine after the fact. But for the Crimean Tatar repatriate community, the presence of that radio was incredibly validating. I heard over and over again, even as there were all kinds of internal disagreements in the community about what kinds of music should be featured there. Um, you know, whenever you're dealing with humans, right, it's going to be messy. And ethnography allows us to kind of see the landscape in, a, in very vivid and sometimes overwhelming detail. Um, but this was another case where you had this self-exoticized almost branding that would spur very different reactions. Um, and sometimes those reactions could be very negative, right? Like why we are not the land of Eastern music. We should not be listening to this music when we go around our lives in the city. And that could tip into these kinds of borderline violent episodes, as I described in the book. Yeah. And this chapter particularly, I, I just, I thought it was a really nice blending of personal experiences with political, you know, sort of uh, experiences as well. And I, I don't know, it just spoke to me in a way because it made me think too of uh, Rory Finnan's new book, Blood of Others. And he talks about the poetics of solidarity. And, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this as I write on sort of poetry in response to famine. And um, I was sort of struck by your argument, though, of, you know, it made me think of like the new term that I would use now 
also, or in addition, is sounds of solidarity and how music became, you know, this sort of mechanism for Crimean Tatars to, to unify under the sounds that, which I loved because you make the point that so many of the songs they were playing, people actually didn't like that much, but it wasn't about the actual songs. It was just the fact that Crimean Tatar music was being played on the airwaves and that was enough of solidarity. And I, I just, I really found that amazing of, you know, you don't even have to like the music, but what it represents is something much bigger. And, yeah, you know, the, which, the whole... Which I think... <laughs> which I think we can all probably relate to in different ways, maybe, you know, probably in very different ways than how I'm detailing this book. But like, mm-hmm. we all have songs, maybe from our teenage years that we're sort of embarrassed by, but when they come on, they still, you know, we have really, as humans, we often have very complex, sort of multi-layered relationships <laughs> to sounds and to musical sounds, um, sounds when they're framed as music. And I think this, these poetics of solidarity um, you know, Rory fin- Finnan's work has been vital for my own understanding of um, Crimean history and Crimean Tatar experiences. But I think this chapter in particular, if I was to write an updated version of it, there would be so many new instantiations of these kinds of musical solidarities present, especially since February 24th, um, but increasingly since 2014. Um, the fact that Crimean Tatars overwhelmingly see themselves today as participants in the project of Ukrainian statehood, Ukrainian sovereignty, is by no means a historical given, right? Uh, But the fact is that we see that to be true um, today and that this kind of post-colonial solidarity, as I think I I refer to it as in the book, um, has been also put onto prominent stages and has been exhibited for other people to bear witness. And, um, you know, Jamala is the clearest example of this um, that I write about in the book in, in, in just the fact that she is the Eurovision representative, a woman of Crimean Tatar heritage, who sings a song that is explicitly about the deportation of Crimean Tatars according to Stalinist edict in 1944. This is a mass atrocity that is referenced explicitly in her Eurovision song, where she also nests in lyrics from the most, one of the most important and well-known Crimean Tatar protest songs from the 1960s. Um, And she does this all as a representative of Ukraine. This was hugely significant in 2016, and it became became again hugely significant after February 24th, 2022, when Jamala went on to become an ambassador of Ukrainian culture um, immediately after following the full-scale invasion, where she performed this song. And the song took on new resonances, right? Not only about the Russian illegal occupation of Crimea, but the full-scale incursion into the country. Um, so this, the, these poetics of solidarity are ongoing and they're proliferating in ways that are incredibly powerful in this moment. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think it's really important that you talk about in the book what happens in 2014 to this radio station and it gets shut down as a result of of the Russian invasion, you know, which has been going on for far longer than, um, you know, February 24th, 2022. Uh, the full scale invasion marked a new uh, a new timestamp, uh, of course, and a major one. But uh, as you know, you know, I think it's important for us to remember that this invasion in Ukraine um, has had significant repercussions for culture, uh, particularly music. But on the other hand, something that gave me hope in your book was sort of the enduring resistance that is always there. And, you know, I think Jamala and her music and the, the Crimean Tatar um, sort of uh, legacy of 
solidarity, it just gives me hope and people keep going and they find ways to resist um, those who are trying to shut them down. And so I, I, I also found that sort of redemptive uh, as we look for redemptive things at the moment in a dark period. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that. And I also want it to be true. <laughs> and sometimes I wonder if my wanting it to be true is a kind of bias that sneaks into the text. But I will just say that I also have heard from many other Ukrainians um, that it doesn't feel untrue, right? And I end the book with a scene from uh, what is often called an ethno musica festival, uh, which was founded by the lead singer of a, of the first Ukrainian Soviet uh, late Soviet punk band uh, rock band called Vopliviu Plasova. His name is Oleg Skripka. He's a huge figure, um, and I actually have a book coming out uh, in a couple months that's about their first cassette release from 1989. But I digress. Uh, Skripka founded this festival called uh, Kreina Mri, which is named after one of their big hits, but basically means dreamland. And it was really striking that after 2014, one kind of aspect of the dreamland became the renewal of a Ukrainian Crimea, which um, would would include Crimean Tatar artists showcasing their expressive cultures. Very often, these were artists who had fled from Crimea after the Russian occupation in 2014. And, you know, it's, it is hopeful, right? If, if you're on the side of Ukraine, which I think is the correct side, the right side of history to be on in this case, it should be hopeful. Um, these are stories that predate the full-scale invasion, and they are stories that show the depth of belief in a kind of coherent Ukrainian state against the odds, right? Against the historical odds um, in a way that would have been hard to predict in 1991 necessarily. Um, and yet here we are, right? We see this very, very strong commitment, right, to um, both acknowledging Crimean Tatar sovereignty as indigenous people and, meanwhile, understanding that Crimea is part of Ukraine. Um, we could talk about the political failures of the Ukrainian state before 2014 in acknowledging Crimean Tatar sovereignty, and that's in the book to some degree as well. But I think this also allows us to see how the realm of culture and cultural sovereignty um, isn't just kind of window dressing, right? That there's also significant kind of political potential in the ways that culture shapes society and can help us envision a more hopeful future. Um, I don't want to sound like some weird politician in saying these things, but again, you know, I, my own commitments should be clear. Like I am on the side of Ukrainians and Ukraine in this moment, but I'm also not entirely surprised by what we're witnessing. And so the surprise that has been such a, such a marker, a ubiquitous marker of the discourse about like, oh, Ukrainians are refusing to submit to Russian power. You know, to me, it is not surprising. This this has been, you know, this is part of the work I was doing in this first book is to document the fact that there has been the emergence of something new in Ukraine. And this new thing is a powerful thing that many Ukrainians are eager to defend. Yeah, well put. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think that we both have a bias here in the sense that we study Ukraine in different capacities. And so I think a lot of us who have been working on Ukraine and study Ukraine professionally, none of us were shocked at sort of the resistance put forth by Ukrainians. But it, on the other hand, it's something that has surprised a lot of people about Ukraine that they did not know about before. And that's sort of helped put Ukraine on people's mental maps because they do endure and they keep going. But I think your book, you know, it's and I, I sort of want to I'll, I'll talk about this maybe at the end about sort of how prophetic your book was actually in 2019 and sort of the 
some of the legacies that resonate now. But I mean, the book does talk about post-colonial and decolonial things that are now being discussed in the current moment. And something, you know, I think we've all tried to sort of articulate to people is that these sort of themes in Ukrainian studies are not new. They did not happen, you know, in 2022. Of course, the war forces these conversations to come up again, and we have to talk about them in new and different ways. But these conversations have been ongoing. And one thing, you know, I, I hope that people will take out of your book is that music, and particularly wild music, is a really important part of this discussion that is contributing significantly to post-colonial and decolonial discussions. And I, I think it's just, it's an amazing thing that you did um, before 2022. Obviously, you did, none of us could predict what was going to happen, but um, it resonates, I think, in important ways. So I also, I, I, I want to return actually to this question of um, identity. And, you know, I, one could read this book and see wildness and I could see it in certain ways as how people might articulate it as a national identity um, or could be construed that way. But uh, you sort of state clearly in your book that you de-emphasize, to use your words, nationalism, because it has been overdetermined by others, which I think is a great point. And I'm wondering if you can just talk further about um, the ways that your book transcends discussions of nationalism and works um, to provincialize, as you put it, um, post-colonial and decolonial theories, or through post-colonial and decolonial theories, the master narratives of history. So you sort of push back against those determining factors. And I, I think it's a great point. I'm just wondering if you could talk about that a little more. Yeah, thanks. I I appreciate that uh, generous appraisal, you know, and I think, I mean, I think there's two different things happening. The first is I just wanted to um, kind of avoid um, falling into the trap of talking about nationalism on terms that are not Ukrainian terms, because we've done that before. <laughs> That's the history of Ukrainian nationalism has been defined by outsiders. That is, in fact, um, the kind of bizarro world justification that that has been given for the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022 is that Ukrainian nationalism is actually the same as Nazism somehow, right? That the only way to kind of participate in the project of Ukraine is to be some sort of uh, rabid, screeching nationalist. Um, and so that, I mean, in a very sort of base way, that was part of the motivation for trying to um, avoid those kinds of traps. although. In the course of the book, of course, I engage with the history of Ukrainian nationalism and, in fact, even have, have to deal with um, Bandera and the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of cult of Bandera that has marked uh, post-Soviet Ukrainian discourses, which is a really messy part of the story. And, John, I know this is part of what you specialize in. Um, so it's not, it's not a wholesale refusal to engage with this idea of nationalism, but it is an attempt to sort of redirect our gaze towards something else, in this case, towards sovereignty. Um, that's partly an attempt at an intervention in music studies, because music it's, music studies has historically always um, trafficked in discourses of nationalism. So it's a sort of disciplinary intervention also to think about how in, instead we can think about music contributing to projects of sovereignty at, on different registers. Um, but it also conveniently allows me to sort of um, not have to uh, double down on existing, pre-existing outsider gazes that look at Ukrainian nationalism only as this partisan pleading, as this you know xenophobic project, or as an ethno-nationalism. So I want to say here that there have been attempts 
to write about Ukrainian nationalism in different ways, about civic nationalism, for example. And I think these are really important kind of, you know, remedies, recuperative projects as well. In my own project, because of the borderland nature and the kind of fragmented ethnographic project that I was conducting, I did find sovereignty to be the more relevant term, right? Um, And I do think today we can see how the defense of a Ukraine that is multilingual, that is multi-ethnic, that is multi-confessional, that incorporates its historically um, excluded others, right? And this would prominently include the historic Jewish community of Ukraine, which obviously inhabits a space in Ukraine today that is not one of abjection and, and rejection, Um just by the simple fact that we know that the president of Ukraine who won in a landslide is himself Jewish, right? This forces us to rethink these historical narratives about exclusionary ethno-nationalism and violence against internal minorities in Ukraine. Because my project is centered on different minorities of Ukraine, different indigenous groups within Ukraine, I necessarily had to think about how do those people become incorporated into a project of Ukraine? And as a result, you know, this kind of trap of nationalism felt um, less relevant. Yeah, exactly. And I, I really appreciated that you avoided those simple traps that still define, you know, many, many books and articles. And uh, I, I think you really complicate it. And I, I also appreciate that you're, you're critical of those things. I mean, you're not afraid to talk about the tough topics like Bandera and, and these types of things. Um, but you also don't spend too much time and get stuck in those debates either. And you move on. And I really appreciate that uh, to talk about sovereignty. And, you know, this is actually one of my favorite aspects of your book really is the geographic and regional diversity that you employ here. Um, And, you know, I was thinking about it. So it's like your prose takes us to the Carpathians. We're on Maidan in Kiev. We're in Crimea. Um, And it, it skips your work really sort of a remarkable breadth and scope. And I, I'm curious if you could just say a little bit more about how and why you chose those places that you talk about in the book. And I'm also curious if there are other places in Ukraine that you wanted to talk about or include in your study, but they just didn't make it into this book. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, the short answer is yes um, on, on other regions. Um, I would also add that I, I, um, I have one chapter that's really dedicated to these central eastern Ukrainian vocal repertoires. So to the east of Kyiv, which is important. Um, I don't really include much on uh, Luhansk and, and Donbass, uh, Luhansk and, and Donetsk, I, um, in part because the research after 2014 became difficult to do. I will say that there are some other excellent researchers working on on music in those regions, and I'll particularly name Irina Shuvalova, whose dissertation on music uh, in the far eastern regions of Ukraine after 2014 is really worth reading, and I hope that comes out as a book soon. Um, you know, at some point, a project has to have its kind of limits. And even um, even just by the nature of having so many different sites, there's, you know, I worry sometimes about the kind of dilettante, <laughs> dilettante-ish potentials of a project like that. So um, my, my approach was to try to get as much depth and breadth and historical knowledge as I could about the three regions that I focus on. Um, 
But every region of Ukraine, and um, in many lectures, I will show what is often called an ethnographic map of Ukraine, which is uh, shows us how the kind of Soviet project of uh, generating ethnographic knowledge divided the country up into these ethnographic regions. Um, each of these regions, which is obviously constructed through the history of Soviet ethnography, but nonetheless, it shows us that there were kind of... Um, ideas about distinctiveness of these various different regions. Um, those maps often also exclude important populations, especially Jewish Roma populations, um, but nonetheless show us that there was this idea about Ukrainian regional diversity that was very operative in the 20th century. So if we take those maps as a kind of standard, I, at best, I'm touching on three of them, right? Um, when there are something like 20. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's endlessly fascinating to me. And the regional diversity of Ukraine um, is one of its strengths, in my view, right? Uh, that there is a, such a multi-ethnic, multi-lingual, um, uh, linguistic uh, nature to, to U- Ukraine's territoriality. Um, but at some point, a book has to have its limits. And so mine is limited in those ways. And I try to, I try to be honest about that, too, right? That this is not a comprehensive... Uh, telling of all of the all of the different iterations of internal otherness in Ukraine, or all of the different histories of exoticism in Ukraine, but rather that it's a kind of selective view based on the stories that felt most gripping to me and the and the places that I had access to. Um, and of course, in the case of Crimea, um, I did return once in 2015, uh, which was which was a very different circumstance under which to return. I had to travel from, from mainland Russia um, at that point. Um, but, you know, before 2014, I was able to kind of freely travel to Crimea. And I spent over a year living there among Crimean Tatar repatriates, um, which really opened my own eyes, given my limited uh you know, kind of diasporic upbringing, my own eyes to the to what was happening on the ground in terms of how Crimean Tatars themselves were thinking of their participation in in the in the Ukrainian space. Yeah, thank you. You know, speaking of ethnography and your own experiences in the field, I wanted to ask you about this actually because in the beginning of your book, you make a, just a small note about feeling like an outsider at one point because you felt that you did not fully pass as Ukrainian uh, in some in some circumstances. And I was struck by this, but I was also struck by the fact that you describe your experiences of going to concerts. I love the photos that you have in the way uh, in the book. You know, these uh, images that you took of bands playing in certain regions. I think that's so cool. Um, you're talking with bands and musicians, which you seem to know some of them pretty well. And you're hanging out with like Hutzel shamans, you know, the Molfars, which I also think is really cool. Um, so to me, I was reading it and it seemed that at some points, the way I was, I was sort of understanding it is I viewed you as an insider a lot of the time because of your relationship to these sort of artists and musicians. But you seem to see yourself as an outsider as well. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that distinction of feeling like an insider and an outsider, um, because you're very honest about it. But to me, you feel so connected to these people. And um, I get the sense that, like, you know, there's not as many people that know the people you write about as well as you do, because you've spent time with them. You know, you're getting uh, there's this great picture of the shaman, you know, playing an instrument. And you talk about him helping people cure themselves of anxiety and these things. And you've spent time and he knows you. And uh, I just, I, these things are amazing to me. It, it shows me, and I think it proves that you've spent time in the field and that you're very much an insider. But 
um, there's also some hesitation to call yourself an insider. So I, I'm just curious well, if you could this is, sort of talk about yeah. that. Of course. Yeah. This is, in some ways, this is like the perennial question, right, of anthropological research is what, what, what one's status is as insider or outsider or whether that binary is even kind of um, is capacious enough to contain the insider outsiderness. In my own case, because of my heritage growing up, um, you know, in a family that really considered themselves very Ukrainian, um, I think I especially want to be careful to not kind of appropriate my uh, Ukrainianness. Um, I grew up in the United States. I have the privileges of U.S. citizenship. I have the kind of, um, you know, the symbolic capital that attaches itself to people who write scholarship in English primarily. Um, and I was mostly exposed to Anglophone scholarship. I mean, all of these things are, I think, worth being honest about and transparent about, especially in this moment when we see that kind of epistemic injustice that's present and who gets to be authoritative in this current moment, which is existential about Ukraine. And so often that excludes Ukrainians, right? I mean, it's profoundly messed up, to put it gently. Um, so I think partly that kind of reflexivity about my own subject position is important for me because I don't want to pretend somehow, right, that I am fully Ukrainian, um, having had the lived experience that I've had. On the other hand, having grown up in a Ukrainian American family, I did grow up with one of my core identities, uh, as Ukrainian. Many of my American friends knew that my family was a Ukrainian family. Um, that was a huge part of my identity and upbringing growing up. And, um, and it became even more important for me after 1991 when I started traveling back to Ukraine and reconnecting to my family there and eventually working in Ukraine where I developed a network of colleagues who I respect tremendously, you know, but whose work you've probably never heard of. Um, or maybe not you, John, but the, to, to the random listener out there. Um, although some of them are in my bibliography. Um, so I think that's partly that's partly it. Um, Lila Abulugod, this well-known anthropologist, writes about a kind of she calls it a halfy identity, and I think that that's um, that's partly the identity I'm trying to inhabit here. The other the other thing is just methodologically speaking, because um, and this is partly this is tells you something also because I. Um, came up in the North American Academy, where the approach to doing ethnographic research is modeled on this long-term immersive fieldwork, which is really distinct from how Ukrainian scholars typically think about doing fieldwork, especially in my field of ethnomusicology, uh, where you do these short visits, uh, kind of strategic hits on different, uh, that sounded more violent than I intended, strategic visits to different villages um, over a, a weekend. You know, It's a very different model the model that I practiced, which was a year or two years, the dissertation fieldwork was two years. And then additionally, I did many, many summers and other visits over afterwards. Um, that model is sustained through grant money that I'm, you know, I, that I have access to because of the fact that I'm in the North American Academy and because in some cases I have a particular citizenship. Um, all of that enables the kind of insiderness that you're experiencing in the text. You know, the fact that I hung out with Mikhail Nechai, who, who kind of branded himself the last Carpathian Mulfar. You know, I was there for months <laughs> in this village and he was one of the prominent people in the village. And I, because I was an Amerikanka, right, he was interested to talk to me. Um, so it plays in both ways. And I, you know, I do think it's a fraught, 
uh, relationship to research to navigate. I think it is dis- really distinct from working in an archive, for example. But I also find it endlessly rich to think through the ways in which my own positionality um, is informs the kinds of questions I'm attracted to and enables me to get access to certain things. Yeah, I, it's an important thing. I mean, okay, and we're back recording. So I'll, I'll ask you that one more time and they'll edit everything out. So um, I wanted to ask you a question uh, sort of geared towards what you wrote in your conclusion. Um, And although your book was published in 2019, three years before Russia's full scale of invasion of Ukraine began, I was sort of struck while reading it how the themes in your book resonate today. Um, And in your concluding chapter on acoustic citizenship, you reference a 2014 interview with the Ukrainian punk rocker Ola Skripka, who you mentioned before, and you're writing a new book about. Um, but in the interview, he states, quote, my role is a singer, but if the Russians come, I will take up arms. Everyone will. That quote I, I found to be sort of unfortunately prophetic. And while Russia's war has been going on for many years now, obviously February 24th changed everything. And I want to ask you about the role of music and wildness in its relationship to war. Um, and I want to know if what you would say have been ways that music has been used in Ukraine to respond or react to the war. And, you know, furthermore, has the war actually inspired new forms of wild music? And what relevance would this have on further claims to sovereignty uh, as we look forward and, you know, hopefully to Ukrainian victory? Yeah, thanks for that question. So in the book, I write about acoustic citizenship at the end. Um, That quote from Skripka hasn't exactly borne out. He did not, in fact, take up arms, but the guitar player in Voklivyduplasova, Zhenya Rochevsky, did, in fact, join the Ukrainian army. Um, And I think that what that shows us is how different musicians have been figuring out how to be most useful in this moment. Um, And that has meant that in some cases, like Skripka's, he felt he would be more effective as a cultural ambassador. And he has been touring constantly, raising funds for different endeavors, um, as have so, so many Ukrainian musicians. So we see how this acoustic citizenship is migrating to what many musicians will refer to as the quote unquote musical front of the war culture in this moment, as it was, um, you know, we've just recently been celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Ukrainian Capella um, Choir's performance at Carnegie Hall, which exposed the American public to uh, Shchedrik, which is known in the Anglophone world as Carol of the Bells. Um, That too, you know, that was a musical uh, diplomacy effort on the part of the Ukrainian Republic at that time. Um, And similarly, we see many Ukrainian artists advancing similar diplomatic missions right now. Dacha Bracha, a band that I dedicate a whole chapter to in this book, um, really kind of started calling themselves ambassadors from free Ukraine back in 2014, where they would also flash signs that said, stop Putin back in 2014, you know, and if anything, they have intensified those efforts recently. Um, I will just also mention that the Eurovision competition this past year resulted in a victory from the Kalush Orchestra, who are a band from the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains. And they also draw upon Hutzel motifs in their music, 
the kind of really dancey break in that song is performed on a talenka, which John might have been one of the instruments that you got to try out in Hutulchna. Um, and that is, again, kind of resurrecting some of the same tropes of exoticism that we saw in Ruslana's 2004 Eurovision performance. So I think the utility of wildness as a, as a representational resource with political valence uh, maintains in this moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, and my final question, I, I want to end on sort of a, a happy note, um, you know, because there's a lot of important themes that you talk about in the book, and I, we've covered a lot of ground in our interview. But I'm wondering, I, I think by this point, listeners are sort of eager for more recommendations for Ukrainian music and Ukrainian artists and Ukrainian fans. And you've given us a lot to listen to in your book. You know, you talk about Ruslana, Jamala, uh, Daka Braka, others. But um, I want to conclude by asking you to give us some further listening recommendations for Ukrainian music. What should we be listening to right now? And, and who do you recommend? Oh, there's so much good music out there right now. I just published a piece about a, a slogan that's a, kind of an unlikely wartime slogan called Dobroho Vechora Mez Ukraine, which just means good evening, we are from Ukraine. And that actually began as um, as a vocal sample taken from Marko Halanevich, who's um, in Dacha Bracha, and then sampled into an EDM track by um, Probase Hardy, who is an EDM group from Kremenchuk, um, and then has become a kind of viral anthem in this moment. Um, in the piece, I also write about a young Ukrainian uh, kind of influencer musician whose name is, who goes by the stage name Jerry Heil, where she takes that sample and figures it back into the music video as a kind of visual symbol. Um, Jerry Heil and Alona Alona have, uh, Alona Alona is one of Ukraine's foremost rappers, an incredible artist. Uh, they have been collaborating on a number of pieces recently. Uh, it's worth checking out their EP. Each song in the EP features a different Eastern European rapper who takes a verse or Eastern European musician who contributes to the track in some way. It's a literal performance of musical solidarity. Um, but there are just so many things out there. I will also mention that I've been really inspired by the outreach efforts of a Kiev-based DJ whose name is Daria Kolomiets. You can Google her and find uh, some of the music she is presenting to the world. She has a deep kind of knowledge and collection, in particular of Ukrainian 20th century vinyl. Um, so some really deep cuts in there, uh, really interesting music and another wonderful iteration of Ukrainian musical diplomacy in this moment. Um, and then the last plug I'll make is uh, that I have I, I was able to curate a playlist for the San Francisco Opera with my colleague Luba Morozova, who uh, was the director of the Kiev Symphony Orchestra and recently took a new position at the Ukrainian Institute. Um, and you can Google that, Indomitable Ukraine, and it uh, documents 300 years, basically, of Ukrainian musical resilience. Um, so if for those who might be interested in classical music, it's uh, heavily biased towards classical music, but also includes popular music from the last few decades. But there's so much out there, and I hope people take... Um, any opportunities they have to look around for all of the kind of just the, just the diversity. Well, I, I think that's great. You, you've given us all a lot of recommendations and I'm certainly going to go look up a lot of these bands that I've not 
heard before and, and artists and musicians and, and give them a listen. But um, I want to thank you, Maria, for joining me today to talk about your book, Wild Music, Sound and Sovereignty in Ukraine. It was published in 2019 by Wesleyan University Press. Highly recommended that you pick it up and give it a read. Maria, thank you so much for talking with me at New Books Network and Ukrainian Studies. I really appreciate it. John, thank you so much for the opportunity.